Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. While we are normally heard on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, this episode will be played on various podcast apps and at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor in between our regular weekly shows. Uh, this episode's special guest will be my co-host, Chris Stroud, obstetrician, fertility expert extraordinaire. He's going to answer questions about pregnancy in a COVID-crazy world. So, Chris, how has your practice been affected by COVID-19? Yeah, Tom, it's a good question, isn't it? I, and I, I think the take-home probably is we're learning every day how it's infected because every day seems to be different than the last um, you know, we're a busy OBGYN office with a lot of people coming and going, which is exactly what you don't want to happen um, in the midst of this pandemic. We're not as uh, affected as, say, our co-host, Dr. Andrew Mullally, who has a busy family medicine practice. And has already seen a COVID patient. Yes. He, you know, he's very busy with elderly people coming and going. Our practice generally is younger people uh, and predominantly reproductive age people, uh, but yet we've been affected. We've stopped doing uh, elective surgeries, which is a, a big part of our work for those struggling with fertility. So that's a hard uh, pill to swallow, pun intended, Ouch. for yes. a couple wanting desperately to be pregnant and feeling like surgery is the answer for them, and yet we have to postpone it. What's worse is I can't tell them how long we have to postpone it, just that we have to postpone it. I think that's been really tough. We've encouraged uh, patients over 60 for routine annual exams, you know, not to come. Um, and then, of course, we're trying to say, don't bring your children to visits, which for our particular office, we're very, you know, we're a very child friendly place. We've had children's toys all over the office that we've had to put away. So I think like most offices, we're learning every day that it's something else we didn't think of uh, the day before. Chris, what are the most common questions you are getting from your patients? You know, I think uh, in our particular uh, patient base, it's pregnancy related, many of which I think you and I will talk about as, as we yes. go. But how does, what does this mean to me as someone who either is pregnant or who wants to be pregnant or who just delivered? Um, that, that's probably the most common thing uh, that we're hearing. And then in addition to that, I think in a generic sort of way, everyone wants to know about work. What should I do? Should I go to work? Should I not go to work? Uh, is, it, is it okay for me to work uh, if my employer says that work from home is optional should I opt for that? So I think everyone is struggling with, with those questions. I think especially in our society where we are not used to having go into a bunker mentality like other countries that have been through this. No, I mean, we're, we're not. And, you know, it's such a part of our culture that we work. That's what we do. And to not do that, feel uh, yes. somehow wrong, doesn't it? And people really struggle for that. In general, Chris, are you approaching COVID-19 similar or different to influenza in your patients? Well, it's a, a little different for us because regular, so-called regular influenza uh, is particularly relevant to pregnant women. Uh, and by that, I mean, uh, some studies will say 40 to 50% likelihood a pregnant patient who gets 
influenza will end up in the hospital. So pregnant women who get influenza get sicker quicker um, than non-pregnant women do. And as we'll discuss as we uh, go on in this episode, pregnant women do not appear to be preferentially affected um, by by this virus. So that's a little bit different for us. The okay, other, so a good thing. Yes, in that regard it is. Um, but what's difficult is children. You know, it is, it's difficult culturally to think about children as being dangerous. <laughs> and so uh, as, as we're learning, children can spread the virus when they don't appear to be sick. Yes. And so correct. so often we have children in our office, children at visits. Most of our patients have children. Uh, but the combination of young children and maybe grandparents or elderly parents, that's really devastating. And it's radically different for all of us. So, Chris, if a woman is pregnant, is she at a greater risk of getting COVID-19 than if she wasn't pregnant? Yeah, at this moment, uh, and, you know, we should probably do a big disclaimer, shouldn't we, uh, on anything that we say, because the evidence seems to be evolving so quickly. It's, and it's, we are recording this on March 21st, 2020. So this is data <laughs> that we know right now. Yes. So spare us a little grace if yes. on... 23rd, everything we say is outdated, but some things are not likely to radically change where others may be modified over time. But at this particular moment, there, there is really no evidence that pregnant women are more susceptible to the virus than the average healthy adult. Now, remember what that means, the average healthy adult less than the age of 60. Um, there's not a lot of data, though, available on this, meaning um, there have not been a lot of pregnant women exposed, and we haven't had enough time as a community to sort of sift through that. Uh, however, we do have a lot of experience with other respiratory viral disease, as we just mentioned, influenza or SARS. Those are much more severe in the pregnant population compared to the non-pregnant population. As I mentioned with influenza, 40 to 50% likelihood a pregnant woman will get admitted um, so it could be that we just don't have enough experience with coronavirus and pregnant women uh, to be absolutely certain at this point. Um, there's a physician, Dr. Romero Gaelig, I believe is how you pronounce his name. He was an obstetrician gynecologist with the CDC's coronavirus emergency response team. And he reports that there could be an increased risk of a miscarriage and preterm birth, but that it's really just too soon to know uh, for certain. So we don't have any evidence right now that the baby's at risk if mom gets coronavirus? That's correct. I think that's some good news here and that the virus has not been detected in amniotic fluid or in the cord blood of a newborn uh, or the placental tissues or most importantly, not in breast milk. Um, so oh, we, good news. Yeah, that is very good news. We call this vertical transmission from baby to mom or mom to baby. Uh, so there doesn't appear to be vertical transmission uh, with this virus. Unlike, remember, not too long ago, we were all talking about the Zinka virus, yes. uh, where that was the opposite. That was very vertically uh, transmitted. There's been at least one report of the virus uh, in a newborn in the United Kingdom, which could suggest that babies could get the disease like everyone else gets it. Uh, that would be after birth. Uh, but to date, we've thought that the infection in kids is really rare 
and is relatively mild, as you've talked about in some of our other updates. Yes. Um, but we're just now starting to read preliminary research from China that could suggest that infants are uh, susceptible. Um, there's a study that's uh, yet to be published from the journal Pediatrics um, that may suggest that uh, children and infants get the disease just like adults do. Uh, something to remind our listeners of, though, the rigorous peer review process that takes place in published research. And that's one of the most important things about published research is that before that information goes out in print, it's put through rigorous testing and critique. And so this particular study hasn't made it through that process yet. So way too soon for us to be making uh, judgments and decisions on that preliminary data. And we actually talked about that article the day after it came out with uh, pediatrician Michelle Stanford. And I remember that in the before uh, age one group, there were a slightly increased number of more severe cases in infants, but you know, under age one, but they all recovered, uh, which was the good news. And it was interesting that they now think they have a mechanism for why uh, it's not as severe in kids and that the receptor on cells in the lungs for coronavirus is something called angiotensin converting enzyme receptor 2 and it seems to not be as well developed in children in other words the lung cells aren't as sticky for the virus uh, as adult cells so that's kind of backwards of most viral diseases which are typically worse in children yeah another example of it's good to be young i guess in that regard <laughs> <laughs> you know, the other thing that I'm reminded of is um, those of us who've been involved with research and publication, we we love to loathe how long it takes to get data published. <laughs> but in this load. particular case, that. it's another example of how important that rigorous review and critique is before things make it into the public domain and that peer reviewed literature is the gold standard and for good reason. So, Chris. You've got a, a woman listening who's pregnant. What measures should she be taking to protect herself against COVID-19? Generally, you know, she should protect herself just like everyone else does. Uh, so think about ways uh, to limit your exposure to potentially infected people. Uh, remembering that those infected with the virus uh, may be infectious to others before they even think that they're ill. Uh, that's where, you know, the, the recommendation for social distancing comes into uh, to mind. Uh, think about working from home, if that's a possibility. Uh, think about utilizing telemedicine options with your obstetrical provider, if that's an option. Uh, wash your hands uh, frequently. Don't take your young children uh, to visits because you don't want your child being infected, and then you bring that infection home to you uh, and to others. But in a general sense, it's the same recommendations for pregnant women um, than for adults in general. Uh, I just got an email from a, a Hong Kong doctor who's been dealing with this epidemic as well as SARS. And he said for hand washing, he sent a, a, a little thing that showed uh, singing the Salve Regina all the way through as the appropriate length for uh, a hand washing. I thought that was interesting. <laughs> that is beautiful. Chris, are you offering telemedicine visits? Uh, we are. We in our practice have been doing telemedicine for uh, several years. And so it's really easy for us to convert uh, some appointments to telemedicine visits. They're certainly not as personable. Um, and telemedicine doesn't necessarily have 
uh, a universal definition. It could just mean a phone call. Um, usually when we say telemedicine, we mean televideo so that we can actually see each other because obviously that's an important part of communication. Uh, but we are offering telemedicine and encouraging uh, patients to utilize it for appropriate types of visits. How important is it that a woman in this situation keep all of her scheduled prenatal visits? Yeah, so a lot of we get a lot of questions. Can I skip some of my prenatal visits? And, and at the risk of sounding like prenatal care is unimportant, there's actually some pretty rigorous studies that show it doesn't have that much to do with the prenatal care uh, as it does with the patient's willingness and ability to get to prenatal care. So the answer is yes, you can skip uh, some, if not a lot of those visits, but you don't want to do that in a in a, uh, in a unilateral way. You want to talk with your obstetrical provider about reducing the number of visits and conducting some of those visits via telemedicine options. Um, you know, now there are great blood pressure cuffs that are available and um, uh, retail outlets. And you and I have talked with uh, some cardiologists about home blood pressure monitoring yes. before. Blood pressure checks are one of the most important things we do in prenatal visits. Um, so you can combine a telephone visit and a home blood pressure cuff and do a lot of good. Um, the critical prenatal care visits are those, though, at the very beginning of pregnancy, when we often do an early ultrasound to establish a due date. Uh, the 20-week visit is a very critical milestone visit. That's when traditionally we do what we call an anatomy ultrasound exam, where we evaluate the baby's entire head-to-toe anatomy. Uh, the 28-week visit, which is not always the most popular with our patients, <laughs> that's where we do the gestational diabetes glucose oh, that drip. syrup tastes really good, I hear. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then the 36-week visit is important where we test for group beta streptococcus, which is really important. Um, if you're a low-risk pregnancy, though, discuss with your provider some of the options of being seen maybe every other week during that 36 to the end when traditionally uh, we see you every week. That's a real possibility. The idea, though, may not be appropriate for you. So you want to discuss those specifics with your OB provider. I really dislike the term, am I high risk? I try never to use that because it, it's, not very, uh, it's not very helpful. So you could be high risk for one thing and low risk for another, and it wouldn't be applicable in this discussion, for example. So the, the key is to talk with your OB provider, your obstetrician, your nurse midwife, and say, for this particular visit, would it be appropriate for me to skip and just do it by phone? Then you've got women who are desperately trying to conceive and they're in the midst of treatment that does not involve surgery, those elective surgical cases that have been canceled. What do you recommend for them in the midst of this social isolation? Yeah, this is a real tricky one, but again, because of medical terminology, um, specifically women that are involved in so-called reproductive technologies or in vitro fertilization cycles, um, many times it, they need to continue that they've gone so far that stopping uh, may not exactly be safe, could be detrimental. They need to continue their treatment. Um, there are also women who may be having uh, eggs removed and frozen 
because they're undergoing chemotherapy for cancer and they want to save eggs. Now, uh, those of us in the Creighton Napper Technology Catholic fertility world don't participate in those procedures, but there are many people, some of our listeners, who may be participating in those. Um, but the recommendations are still the same to cancel non-essential procedures that are and also diagnostic studies that could wait if they're scheduled now. And this could include surgical procedures for endometriosis and other fertility-related conditions. That does affect me and the kind of patients that I care for. So again, you need to talk to your provider about the specifics of your case uh, and should they be avoided? Because we don't all have the same idea about what a non-essential procedure is or isn't. The reason that we are postponing elective procedures is so that ventilators and other equipment uh, is available for COVID patients. Do you have any idea, Chris, in your local hospitals, if any of those ventilators are indeed being used by such patients? You know, I don't. And it, it's changing quickly. And it's difficult, as I'm sure our listeners are finding, to separate facts from myth, isn't it? And so uh, it's very difficult to process the information as it comes in. But I think to your point, the idea is that we just need to reduce the overall demand on the healthcare system to reserve capacity for people who become critically ill. And we know, particularly in the Midwest where you and I reside, that we haven't experienced that push yet. Um, but by all indications, we will experience that. And we want to make sure that facilities and personnel and equipment and medications are available uh, when that wave inevitably hits. And it is going to hit. That was one of the messages from Paul Carson in our most recent. Yes, Chris. If it doesn't hit, it would be tempting, I think, for all of us to say, see, I told you, uh, this is all a bunch of overreaction. But to the contrary, we should be high-fiving ourselves. Yes. That happens. If because that does. That, that we, we acted quickly and decisively, and we flattened the curve as the terminology goes. Um, sadly, not to be pessimistic, but I, I'm with you. I think we will experience uh, that wave, and we, we need to be prepared for it. You know, as we were preparing for this episode, <clears throat> I realized that, Chris, you are one of those doctors who flattened the curve, but that's the curve of the pregnant belly, right? <laughs> There's got to be an eye roll moment in everyone. Yes. So you know, would be greatly disappointed if we didn't. <laughs> so Chris, say there's a pregnant patient and they are having viral flu-like symptoms. What should they do now? Yeah, it goes without saying, but those are usually the important things to say. Don't stay quiet about it. Uh, it is not a time to be uh, bashful about your problems and your symptoms. So reach out to your obstetrical provider and or your primary care provider and work with them uh, to determine if you're an appropriate candidate, so to speak, uh, for coronavirus testing. But don't, don't stay quiet. Get involved and get involved uh, quickly. Um, various providers' offices have all and are all taking uh, steps to address this challenge. Uh, but in general, across the board, you know, expect to be treated a little differently and rightfully so. So, you know, expect 
along the lines of arriving at your provider's office and being asked to wait in your car. This is not a time to worry about politeness uh, and etiquette, but you know, we don't want you coming in the office if you're ill. Uh, a lot of offices are saying, call us when you get in the parking lot, we'll come out and triage you. Uh, I know you and I have discussed you're doing some of that at your office as well. Um, you'll likely be placed in the office in some kind of isolation room. Um, and don't be offended to find out that so-called isolation room might be an extra staff bathroom. Uh, again, <laughs> not time to be worried about uh, aesthetics here when we're trying to protect people. Um, and don't be offended that the staff may be dressing up in, uh, in hazmat suits because you look dangerous. Um, they're not afraid of you and they don't mean to be impersonable. Um, but if ever there was a time to remember um, the principle of solidarity and uh, another great Catholic teaching, we are truly all in this together. And we have to think not of ourselves, but about others. And so me asking you to stay in your car instead of coming in, it's not about you. It's about um, the elderly person that may come in after you. Um, you know, I live, uh, interestingly, with uh, my mother and my mother-in-law, uh, both who would love me saying, I'm sure, are elderly. So me, <laughs> me being exposed to the virus in my office and bringing it home could quite literally be deadly. And uh, many, many people are in that situation. So um, this is not about you as the individual. It's about us and all of us working together to protect those that are at risk. In a COVID-19 world, what is different about uh, labor and delivery experiences of women who are, might be delivering right now? Yeah, you know, it, it may not be um, the clouds parting and doves being released on cue. <laughs> <laughs> your, your experience may be a little more, uh, forgive the pun, sterile than, than maybe uh, you planned. Yes. Uh, there are, you know, universal... Uh, visitor restrictions at hospitals all across America. So please don't uh, hate on your local hospital because they're doing visitor restrictions. They just have to. Um, in many, many, in fact, I think most hospitals, birth support personnel restrictions are in place. I know at our local hospitals, it's only um, the spouse and, and no one else. Occasionally, they're letting other birth support professionals like doulas in, but expect doulas to be uh, regulated and restricted. Expect birth photographers to be uh, restricted. Expect hospital workers uh, to dress up funny like you have the Ebola virus. Um, because again, they're, they're not so much thinking about themselves, they're thinking about the other patients that, that they may encounter. Um, think about an abbreviated postpartum stay to limit your exposure to the hospital setting and to free up personnel and resources. Um, take advantage of telemedicine postpartum visits. So that routine four to six week visit, um, uh, you could change that to a telemedicine visit if that's an option with your OB provider and your pediatric provider. Um, you know, pediatric offices are great places to encounter viral disease. No offense to our pediatric colleagues. Um, they know that. <laughs> and I would everyone encourage everyone, you referenced her, to listen to our pediatric uh, colleague, uh, Dr. Michelle Stanford, talking about really some great advice from a pediatric provider standpoint. 
And then for those women who have given birth and they have a newborn at home, what do you want them to know in the midst of this pandemic? Yeah, this is big. And this may not be intuitive to our listeners, um, but there is a pandemic of sorts related to postpartum depression. Um, wow. In our profession, we have been struggling for years now to do a better job uh, at treating postpartum depression. And uh, this social isolation um, is not going to help. <laughs> and we've got no. to that. So social distancing is, a, is an attractive way to say isolation, isn't it? Um, and feelings of isolation um, are often a part of postpartum mood disorders like postpartum depression and even postpartum psychosis. And often parents and grandparents, um, they plan to be a big part of the postpartum support system. And now that may be impossible uh, for good reasons. Uh, neighbors dropping over with a casserole to help with food preparation and maybe laundry, they are likely not going to be as readily available. Um, and so having the ability to get out of the house and interact with other adults, which is a key to avoiding postpartum depression, now is increasingly difficult, if not impossible, because think about churches are closed and neighborhood gatherings and all sorts of social support structures uh, are closed. So a couple of key bullets uh, to think about. If, you, if you've struggled with depression or anxiety in your life outside of pregnancy, we already know that you're at great risk for postpartum depression. Um, so you've got to be on high alert uh, for signs uh, of the disease. Uh, and sometimes your spouse, um, the person that you live with, may be in the best position to spot those early signs. So if there's any signs of postpartum depression, um, you need to interact with your provider on that immediately. That's excellent advice. Absolutely. And be willing, more so than before, to use depression medications like Prozac and Zoloft for postpartum depression symptoms, uh, especially during this challenging time when other things may not be working as well. And remember that you being depressed is not good for the baby. Uh, and not good for you. So this may be a time where we have to be a little more willing to accept medication when other times we've tried to avoid the use of medication. Um, another thing to remember, exercise, exercise, exercise. Get out of the house, go for a 30 to 45 minute walk uh, with or without the baby every day at least. That can have magical properties no matter where you live in the country, no matter how bad the weather may be, wrap up and get outside and walk around. That can have terrific preventative properties. Um, start during your pregnancy to work on a virtual network, you might say, uh, utilizing social media, FaceTime, Zoom, Skype, etc., to connect regularly with your friends and your family. You got to start working on that early. Figure out who you can connect to. And then when you have your child, have a daily communication plan that you can connect with loved ones. They want to see your child. Remember, they're limited as well. But that can really go a long way to preventing a sense of isolation for you. And don't, above all, be reluctant to ask your provider for help. We want to help you, but we've got to know that you're struggling. And since we may not be seeing you face to face, you've got to help us uh, help you. You know, Chris, we were talking earlier about how there's a lot of stress 
depression, and a lot of aspects of this epidemic we haven't thought about. And we were talking about a text that one of our friends sent me who's actually taking care of COVID patients. And I, I think it's worth reading this to listeners. He wrote that there are many patients dying in the hospital today. They're dying of stroke, heart attack, cancer, etc. There are no visitors allowed. Limited visitation is allowed only when death is imminent. He spoke to his son, who will not be with his mom as she dies because he has a lung condition. It's a brutal human tragedy. When we get through this, I'm haunted with the fear that we may be less human rather than more human. Pray for his mercy and consolation. Amen. And amen. And then, you know, the other thing, just before interviewing Chris, I interviewed a doctor in Hong Kong, and he said that people are not aware of the enormous stress being placed on the healthcare workers, the doctors, nurses, technicians who are in hospitals right now. It is greatly affecting them also. So we have a huge uh, mental health challenge uh, in place right now. Yeah, we do. And, and to his point about being more or less human, I, I, I certainly hope he's wrong. Um, but it's, it's terrible. Can you imagine dying alone? Uh, no, no. One, no one should ever die alone. And we, and we know that our Lord is there with them, comforting them. Um, but it's hard on that person to die alone. And let's not forget their loved ones. It's hard on them not to be there uh, to comfort that person at the most important um, time in their existence. So I think we're learning every day more um, more devastating consequences uh, of this virus. But we've we've got to um, more so maybe ever um, than we have reach out to each other, and we've we've got to minister to each other and to families and the elderly who who really may be feeling alone. And uh, a phone call may go a long way to really helping someone. Uh, feel connected. Um, and w- we know that we know how this story ends. We know that we're going to survive and we're going uh, to thrive. But these are troubling, difficult times, and we can't overlook that. Chris, are there any final words that you'd like to impart? Yeah, listeners, um, you know, uh, pray for us and pray for each other and and pray for healthcare workers who are struggling to do the right thing. Um, and try not to forget uh, that that this is the time uh, to be holy and to think of others more than ourselves and to remember that uh, the suffering we know about is outpaced by the suffering that we yet to know that's happening uh, in silence. And, uh, and let's pray for each other as we work our way through this. Thank you, Chris, for sharing your wisdom and expertise. Thank you, listeners, for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share. Please hit that share button so that other people can know the good news of Dr. Doctor. Invite them to listen to their favorite podcast app or on RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Be sure to rate and review our show to help new listeners find us. And listeners, uh, send us your questions. Tell us uh, something that you want to hear or something that you like or don't like. Uh, about a previous show. And please check out the special podcast-only episodes that are dealing uh, with this pandemic on your favorite podcast app. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. 
Doctor Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Doctor Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor.